Well, welcome to Livingstone Church in our gathering service. We are really excited to have you here this morning. Um, I just need to take a moment to thank some people this morning. Um, you know, as, as a pastor, you are privileged and blessed to work with some amazing and wonderful people. And Good Friday service and Easter Sunday services coming together um, puts a big burden upon a lot of, of people in our church, and, and they just responded so wonderfully and amazingly this week, and they didn't consider it a burden whatsoever. You know, thanking Denise and, and Glenn and the music team and Ethan and Ruben and, and Steve Furman. Um, there's so many people that need to be mentioned um, just coming and setting up the facilities and tearing down, um, setting this room up, tearing it down, setting the sanctuary up, tearing it down, and doing everything this week. Um, Elijah, I woke you up at 5 a.m. this morning to come and help me, um, so I really appreciate it. I had to buy him donuts, um, but uh, I think it was worth it, definitely worth it. But so many wonderful people that really make these things possible, so I just want to say thank you to those amazing people and, and, and everybody that's been part of this set up and tear down and, and everything that's going on Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday services. The good news this morning is Good Friday is over and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is here, and He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. And we're going to dive into it this morning. If you got your Bibles with you, open it up to John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20 this morning. We're going to be looking at 31 verses this morning. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. And um, I was joking with the first service that they have a reprieve because I have a second service. The bad news for you all is we don't have a third service, so uh, I don't have a backstop, so uh, I may get some, some, no, we won't go that long this morning, but I just want to um, spend some time rejoicing and celebrating some events that took place, but as we look at this morning, one of the things that we're going to take a look at is specifically look at an Easter and this Easter service on this 2000, the year 2016 is that this is the greatest victory ever. The greatest victory ever. So please join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to celebrate who you are this morning. Lord, you are an amazing God. And we truly mean what we just sang and prayed at the same time. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, we have such a distorted view of what your kingdom looks like and it looks like to be your kingdom people. And Lord God, we don't want our view. We don't want our perspective. We want your perspective. We want to understand what it looks like to be your kingdom people, part of your plan. We want to understand this morning what the resurrection meant, not how we flippantly interpret or how we just tentatively celebrate it, but how it truly, what implication it has for all of eternity and for our lives. Teach us this morning. And Lord God, may we not let the familiar, this event that maybe we've studied over and over again or told the stories over and again, keep us from discovering new and amazing application into our lives. Touch our hearts this morning. Challenge our faith, Lord. Please, in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I began to think about victories, there's some background you need to know about me. First off, I am not from Washington. I am from the great state of Nebraska, the good life, okay? I always joke around about Nebraska as being a good place to be from, okay? So 
I'm from Nebraska, and so and, and in the state of Nebraska, you realize something that there's only one sport that matters. And so for me, there's two seasons. There's college football season, and then there's getting ready for college football season. And, and so God has a sense of humor. He brought me to a basketball town, and he had my eldest son be really good at baseball. So I'm, I'm having to spread my, my depth and, you know, and, and understanding of other sports and things. But so as I was looking at some of the greatest victories of all time, I was looking, okay, let's look in the last century. We're still, we're still working on this century. Let's look in the last century from 1900 to 2000. What were some of the greatest victories ever had? And being a good football fan and college football fan, the first place I looked was college football. What was the greatest victory in college football or the greatest team in college football in the night from 1900 to 2000? And you know, I was so pleased to discover something. In 1971, the Nebraska versus Oklahoma game, where Nebraska won 35 to 31, is called the game of the century. And Nebraska was a great back and forth game, and, and some amazing micros years. Some other guys were on that team, just, just, just amazing football players. And ESPN touted that that 1971 Nebraska team, that team itself was the greatest team of the century. Now you can take it up with them, but. It's official. It's on books. Just, just go in there, okay? And for our non-football fans, and since it's basketball season and the March Madness and all that stuff, I figured, well, we better find out what the game of the century was for the basketball. In 1965, UCLA was ranked number one, and Houston was ranked number two. John Wooden was the coach of UCLA, and they were unbeaten and had a 47-game winning streak going. Now, I don't know if that's ever been matched in college basketball. Any? No, no, okay. So, so, and 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 here Houston did. They came back from a big deficit, came back and beat the eventual national championship Bruins, seventy-one to sixty-nine. Big, huge victory. Okay. Well, being also a military guy, I was an army chaplain before I became a pastor, and so I began to look at well, what were the greatest victories for the U.S. American military forces? There are five that were listed: Battle of Yorktown. Battle of Mexico City, a Battle of Vicksburg, the Battle of Midway, and Operation Overlord. So the last greatest victory we had that they felt was the greatest American victories was during World War II. Now I began to think, you know, as a, as a good pastor, you're supposed to consider your audience, okay? And I know that we have people in our audience who aren't football fans, and who aren't basketball fans, and who aren't military fans. And so the fo- next victory is for you, okay? The next victory is for you. D. Byron versus Fisher in 1956, and the greatest was considered the greatest chess match of all time. The 13-year-old Robert Fisher defeated D. Byron. Okay, so that that was you know a great chess victory, you know, in, in, in that time. And you know what's kind of cool is last night you can actually go back and replay the moves. It was kind of cool to watch. You know, I didn't understand any of it, but it was kind of cool to watch. But as you look at these great events, those great victories. It's fun to look back, but it's like we talked about before. We have football fans, and some football fans may really appreciate that 71 Husker team and that 71 game against the Sooners. Or we may have some basketball fans in here that really appreciate that event that took place in 1965 with John Wooden being the coach of UCLA and all that went in there in Houston upsetting them and that great victory. Or we may have some military people in here that really appreciate the great victories and the cost of the great victories that they took the United States went through when they accomplished these things. Or chess fans 
who understood what it took for a 13-year-old to defeat someone who was as battle-hardened as D. Byron, as, as, uh, like I know, but, you know, a good component is as D. Byron. But none of these things people would consider universally, they would all, all of us in this room would hold to that victory as something that is personal to them. So one of the key components for this victory be the greatest victory ever is the possibility for it to be applied to all of us in this room. So where do we got to start? We got to start with the victory story, right? Got to, you know, if you're going to go back through and study the 71 Huskers, you're going to want to start from the beginning of the season. I love those ESPN things where they, they walk through and how the sto- that season got started and, and what all went entailed to that, that team being as great as they were and, and all those events that took place. And then you go into the game and watch the game. Well, let's, let's take a moment and look at the victory story of the greatest victory ever. Let's look here in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, before we can jump into this passage, we've got to understand the mindset of Jesus' followers at this time. Good Friday has happened. They had just watched an illegal trial take place. They just watched Jesus unjustly be sacrificed upon the cross and be placed in the grave. And when they rolled this large stone in front of the grave, every single one of them thought it was game over. In their minds, there wasn't Jesus Christ coming back from the dead. In their minds, this was, this was game over. And they, they locked themselves, the disciples and everyone, locked themselves in a room and hid from the world for fear of the Jews. We'll read more about that here in a second. And they looked, locked themselves and they hid away. And so when Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb, she is not going to the tomb with this understanding and expectation that she's going to see Jesus alive. She's going to the tomb either to cry, to mourn, to weep, like sometimes we do when we lose a loved one. We go to the gravesite. We, we, we'll talk to the we'll talk to the stone. We'll talk to and share share life events and how we miss them. Mary Magdalene is going to grieve, or she's going to take spices and place them upon Jesus, and so as his body decays, it doesn't stink. Mary Magdalene has got this idea and this perspective and focus that when she goes there, she's seeing Jesus dead. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter because she got there and the stone is rolled away. And the other disciples, so in, in the Gospel of John, and it says the one whom Jesus loved. And when the Gospel of John, when you hear the one who he loved or the other disciples talking about G- John, the disciple of Jesus, the author who wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit this Gospel. And then he said, they have, she said, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and they do not, we do not know where they have laid him. So her understanding is Jesus is dead and somebody has stolen his body and taken him away. And so how do Peter and, and John respond? What I love about John's account is a very fast acting, very quick hitting under story of the resurrection of Jesus. How does Mary respond? She casually walks to the disciples. No, she's on a sprint. Everybody in this book, Christy, you should be your favorite account because everybody's a runner in this story, okay? So at Mary Magdalene, she's a runner. She runs to tell Simon Peter. And Simon Peter and John, when they hear this news, they become runners. Now, it's kind of humorous as we read this account here. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. 
but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this is kind of funny and it's humorous as we look at this account. As John is the one writing the story, making sure that everybody knows he outran Peter. <laughs> it's in the history books. It's in the Word of God. It's there. John is the faster disciple. I don't know if they had a little competition. And John, you know what? I mean... <coughs> I don't know if John, as he's penning this and the Holy Spirit's laying upon his heart, is he's got a little bit of a smirk on his face as Peter's going to love this. Um, <laughs> he got there first and, and he's stop, and stopping to look in. And so a lot of the pictures you see of tombs are, uh, you know, five foot, six foot doorways and wide enough for you to walk into. That really wasn't quite the case back in those days. Oftentimes it was just high enough, three foot by three foot kind of thing, to get on your hands and knees and, and lift and carry the body into the tomb, and then it would open up a little more inside and set them down. So when, when, when John comes running up to the tomb, he sees the stone rolled away. He kneels down, and he looks inside, and he can see the garments of Jesus, but no Jesus. He stops there. But Peter, impetuous Peter, who just got out ran, arrives to the tomb. And when he gets there, it says that Peter doesn't stop outside. This is Peter's way of doing things. He's going all the way. He's going inside to where see Jesus was going to be at. He, and he goes right in there. And this is the scene that they see. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying were the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple John, who's been waiting out on side, sees Peter, goes inside. Oh, good, it's safe. I'll go now. He runs inside, and he goes inside with Peter. And another disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. It, some people don't like writing in their Bibles. I have no problem with it. Underlined, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. John, what did he believe? And this is extremely important for us. John made it very clear what he believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Up until this point, they had not understood. Mary was confused. John was confused. Peter was confused. The disciples were confused about what was happening, what was taking place. But when John saw that the, the death clothes of Jesus had been laid here and his face cloth had been folded up and placed over here, Jesus said this was going to happen. I remember now. Jesus said this was going to happen. I believe Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He, he's not dead anymore. He's not in this tomb anymore. Somebody hasn't taken his body. He is, he is out of these death clothes, and his, he's no longer in need of that face cloth, and he folded it up and said over here, he is alive. This is not something that would take place from somebody who stole a body, but somebody who got up and walked out. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, we see a glimpse here, and then and that's kind of where it leaves off with the disciples. But at some point, Mary Magdalene returns back to the grave. She is dismayed. I don't think she ran into Peter and John as they were going out. They may have taken a different way. I don't know. But Mary is here outside the grave, dismayed. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped. To look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white. Sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head. One at the feet. And they said to her. Woman. Why are you weeping? 
she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now I want to stop there for a second. Okay? Twice Mary's been asked this question, Why are you weeping? And the rest of us are going, Duh, she thinks Jesus is dead. She's mourning, she's grieving. On Good Friday, when Jesus Christ was hung upon the cross and he was crucified and he died and they were weeping and they were mourning, that was the time for weeping and mourning. While Jesus was in the grave, as we woke up Saturday morning to go to Ethan's baseball game and hang out at the fields, I was just stuck in my mind trying to think of what the disciples would have been going through at this time as Jesus lay in the grave and everything seemed to be lost and their grief and their mourning. But this is Sunday morning and the time for grief is over. Why are you weeping? Jesus said this was going to happen, and he's no longer dead. The time for grief and mourning is over. Whom are you seeking? Because if you're seeking Jesus, he ain't here. He ain't where you think he's going to be. And supposing him to be the gardener, gotta love that. Jesus, you know, he's, he's the gardener now. You know, he's just out there pulling weeds around the tomb. And she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Oh. She watched him die. She knew he'd been taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and laid in the tomb. The stone rolled in front of it. She had said goodbye to her Lord. Now to hear her name by her Savior, Mary. And when he says her name, what takes place? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. When Jesus said her name, she recognized it was her Lord. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, that's two people who have believed at this point in the story. John and Mary. And you would think that on the basis of these two witnesses, that the disciples would then be going, okay, something's going on, and, and we can start acting in confidence, and we can start acting as if he is alive and trusting that he is alive. But back in those days, if you wanted proof of something to happen, and, and ladies, I don't mean this disparagingly at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite when we look at this, that you wouldn't tell a woman. Back in those days, if you wanted something to be confirmed as actually taking place, you wouldn't tell a woman, you'd tell a man or a group of men, and they would confirm it happened. But Jesus loves Mary. Jesus has a powerful love for women and for people. And I mean, you look at the scriptures, and the Gospel of Luke especially, Jesus loves women. And he has a special plan and purpose for women in his kingdom work and his kingdom plan. And in a day and age where not much value was ascribed to women and kingdom work, Jesus ascribes an incredible amount of value to women in the kingdom work to be done. So if you're here this morning 
be, and as a woman filled treasured by God. Jesus appeared, his first appearance to was to a woman. To confirm to her his love for her. And she goes and tells the disciples. But in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked and where the disciples were for fear for the Jews, Jesus came and stood and said to them. Now what's beautiful about this passage is the disciples, John's believing, Mary's telling them, but they're still filled for, they're hiding away, they're scared for their lives, and Jesus comes to them. Now Jesus, when he had walked the earth, we read in Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus chose not to utilize his, his godlike power when amongst them and show, show his full glory to them, and that he withheld some, some of this, this actions that he could do, and he went to the cross, and he died, and he rose again. But guess what? The gloves are off now, and Jesus' glory can be revealed more and more and more to the disciples for our, for our glory and for our, our encouragement. And so Jesus, well, how does he appear to them? He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't rip open the roof and descend down. He doesn't crawl through a window. It says the doors were locked, the windows were shut, the roof was secure, everything. There was no way anybody was getting in that room because they were scared to death. But Jesus is standing in the midst of them. He appears. He's going through walls right now. And what does he tell them? Why in the world are you fearful? Why are you anxious? Why are you afraid, you knuckleheads? How many times did I tell you this was going to happen? And you're not believing me. No. He knows they're fearful. He knows they're anxious. He knows they're afraid. And he says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. The presence of the king is in your midst. Everything is okay. When he had said this, he showed him them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am so now sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus Christ is telling his disciples that my peace that I am bringing to you is so that you no longer be afraid and live behind closed and locked doors and closed and locked windows and sit in rooms gathered together in fear of the world. I bring my peace to you so that you can come share with the world. Jesus is risen. I am the king. I have risen from the grave. But there was somebody who wasn't present. And you and I know people like this. You talk with people like this. You're here this morning and you're a child of God and you have friends that you're trying to share your faith with and, and you're struggling and they're like, man, I, don't, I can't believe that until I understand all this or I, I need all this information. Well, Jesus had one of those disciples on his team. And I got to love that. Jesus knew Thomas was a doubter, was a questioner, and he still called him to be part of his team. How cool is that? Jesus didn't select just the, the, the dudes that would be, oh man, quick learners and quick studies and, and would be sit silent. I mean, he had, a, he had Peter who will fly off the handle all the time. He had James and John who wanted to be number one. He had, you know, I mean, just some interesting, and you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was like a Gentile. I mean, then you got all these situations. You got Simon the Zealot, who basically, as we read in scriptures, that could have been part of a rebellious movement against the Roman Empire, where which he would have agreed to shed blood of the Romans. All on Jesus' team. 
I mean, you look around this group and they're just a wackadoo bunch of gatherings of individuals, but it sure gives me a lot of hope. Well, Thomas wasn't part of this. And so eight days later, we read this account where, where Jesus appears to Thomas. And Tom, but Thomas is, had heard what had happened. And Thomas made this statement. And you and I cringe when we hear the statement. Thomas says, unless I put my finger in the holes of the hands of Jesus' hands where the nails okay, went through, unless I put my finger there, and unless I take my hand and I thrust it in his side, and you're like, ooh, I'm not a medical person. That wouldn't be fun. But you're like, he says it. I mean, it's a really gutsy statement. Unless I do this, I will never believe. And Jesus could have said, you know what, Thomas? I've had enough. I've had enough of you and your lack of belief and your lack of faith. But instead, he appears and almost verbatim repeats the previous scene. The doors are locked. The windows are shut. The roof is closed. Jesus appears before them. And he says, Thomas, I know you need this. Touch my hands. Touch my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love this about Jesus and the resurrection of the count. Jesus doesn't just rise from the grave and go to heaven and nobody ever sees him. Jesus reveals himself to Mary. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples multiple times. Jesus reveals himself to Thomas so that people would know and believe Jesus has risen from the grave. This is crucial. This is crucial. And as we look at this passage, you're like, okay, but how does this deal with this victory that you're talking about? How does this address the greatest victory ever? Yeah, okay, we see that there's accounts that Jesus has appeared to others. And we see that they're recorded not only in the Gospels, but where we see that are also recorded. Josephus records accounts. There's other external biblical literature that records the appearings of jesus christ it is documented in roman historical documents it's amazing jesus has risen from the grave and that you can bank on in fact paul is so confident in jesus rising from the grave he tells the corinthians in first corinthians 15 if you struggle with believing this then guess what let's put it to the test Let's put the resurrection to the test. And if you can disprove resurrection, we are the most to be pitied because guess what? We spent a lot of money. We, we, we wasted a lot of our time and probably we should be home with our feet up on the couch right now. But Paul is so confident in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, put it to the test. Put it to the test. It's testable. It's verifiable. It's truthful. So why is this the greatest victory ever? Well, first off, in understanding the victory, we know that Jesus is God. Listen to this. The resurrection proved that the Christ was divine. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross does not prove in itself he is God. Listen to that. Jesus proved his deity by fulfilling the prophecies of his death and by his return from the grave. If Jesus doesn't get up and walk out, it's done. It's dead deal. He's not God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, that the Bible declares that being raised from the dead, Christ was proven to be the mighty Son of God with the holy nature of God Himself. 
So you and I have friends out there who claim that Jesus isn't God. And they claim that the Bible never supports the truth that Jesus is God. Well, the Bible does do that. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very fact that Jesus got up and walked out of that grave proves to the world Jesus is God. And let me tell you what. Some people feel that, you know, religions don't, don't hold that Jesus is God, or maybe he's a good prophet, a good moral man, good other things. You know, we can look at those other religions, and they're not that bad off. Let me, brothers and sisters, if Jesus isn't God, then the sacrifice doesn't count. Then what was accomplished on the cross doesn't matter. He had to be the perfect son of God, because all of us are born sinners, All of us are born into this world with a propensity to sin and to mess up, to make mistakes, to do wrong things. All of us who have children will attest that this, the knowledge and the revelation of this attest at a very early age. Amen? It doesn't, no one had to teach your kid how to torture their sibling. No one has to teach your kid how to to lie, to manipulate, to steal, to do things that are wrong. It just comes naturally because they're born sinners in need of God's grace. Amen? The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. The next thing we see here, the resurrection proves Christ's power to forgive sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. When Christ died upon the cross that night, his closing words, which we talked about on Good Friday, into your hands I commit thy spirit. He was speaking to his father. He said, it is finished. Well, does that mean he was just, okay, it's finished. The crucifixion's done. I'm going to die now. No. The very work that he came to accomplish on the cross was complete. It lacked nothing. It didn't go wrong. In one single place, it was perfectly executed. It is finished. It is is accomplished so when christ gets up from the grave and he walks out of that tomb guess what it affirms it is finished it's the victory shout and acclamation that what jesus said on the cross is confirmed and has happened by his victory over the sin and grave and because jesus walks out jesus has the ability to forgive our sins and we can have hope but that forgiveness of sin is for those that believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Believes these things to be true. The third thing that we see that the resurrection proves is the resurrection revealed Christ's power over death. The Bible records in Romans 6, 9, Christ rose from the dead and he will never die again. Death has no longer any power over him. And in Ephesians 2, 6, the resurrection secured our victory over death as well and lift us, lifted us up from the grave into glory with Christ where we sit with him in the heavenly realms. After the fall of Adam and Eve, death became normative. We're born and we die. Jesus did not make us. Our creator did not make us to die. Did you know that? We weren't made to die. We were made to live for all eternity. 
And when Jesus Christ comes and has victory over the grave, death, that mighty tool of the evil one, the thing that held mankind in oppression has been defeated as Jesus Christ gets up from the grave. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that those who are in Christ Jesus, that those who have believed in Jesus Christ, that when we die, we die knowing that when Jesus Christ returns, there'll be a resurrection of those who have died in Jesus Christ will be given new bodies and live with him forever and never experience death ever, ever again. This is possible because the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, we experienced, aren't they having a good time up there? Yeah, kind of make, how many of you are wishing you were up there right now? Come on, don't be, ah, Ruben, I see that hand. Jesus defeated death and sin and it's wonderful and it's exciting as we look at this that we no longer have to to know that death is the end. For us, as we experience death now, that you know, a great friend of mine, and for those of you who have, who have friends, you know, family members that may be dying right now of cancer or other illnesses or age, they may make a statement to you, I am afraid of dying. That does not mean that they're not believers in Jesus Christ. John Wolverd, one of the most respected men, he was president of the seminary that I went to, on his deathbed stated, I know where I'm going when I die. I am excited to see my Lord. But the journey is terrifying because it's not natural. God didn't make us to die. He didn't make us so that the soul would be separated from the body. He made us that we might live forever in him. And that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. Even in the face of death. And finally, Jesus defeated Satan. Now, I want you to pause for here for a second and talk with you for about this, because there's been some bad statements in regards to this. There's been some bad songs written, okay? Jesus didn't, upon the cross and upon breathing his last breath, go into a sparring match with Satan down in the underworld. I've heard it preach, seen it on videos, other things. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he didn't bargain with Satan. He didn't pay Satan anything. The debt Christ came to pay was the debt we owed to God the Father who is holy and who is perfect and who is just and demanded a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that willingly laid down its life so that those of us who are in Christ Jesus might have life and might have forgiveness of sins. That payment was to God the Father. Satan took one to the chin and it was done. Jesus Christ didn't bargain with it. Satan doesn't get that credit. Jesus Christ defeated Satan that day. Sin and death no longer for the children of God have control over us anymore. And we can be excited about that. But in every conflict, whenever there's a victory, there's two sides, isn't there? We don't like that in America. We want to make everybody a winner, don't we? We really don't like the other term, okay? In fact, when we see the other term, even when I looked at the other term, I got like, oh, man, do I really say that on a Sunday morning? 
Because we, we all want to be winners. We all want people to get a trophy at the end of the game. But if you ask the, the, the Sooners of 1971 if they were winners, the answer is going to be no. The greatest game, of the, isn't that fun? The greatest game of the century, we were losers. And I, that's a fun one. My wife's from Oklahoma. I got to take a little dig every once in a while. Yeah, and you're probably, most of you are going, yeah, and what's the current state of the Huskers? I know, I know. <laughs> but there's winners and there's losers. And not everybody's going to get a trophy. And not everybody's going to win. And why bring this up? You're like, man, Pastor, we had a very uplifting, fun CERN going into this point. And then you really just took it down the drain. Read with me in Matthew. You don't have to turn there or you just want to listen. Matthew 28. I'm going to turn there and... Read it, running long on time. 28, verse 11. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day went to the Romans and said, hey, Jesus had told his followers. This is completely ironic. The, the religious leaders paid more attention to what Jesus had said than his own disciples. And so they told the Roman government, hey, they, they've said that they're going to, he's going to rise again and come back. And so we don't believe that's going to happen, but we do believe his followers are going to sneak in and take the body. So we need some troops stationed outside of the front of the tomb. Okay? And so they stationed some troops out in front of the tomb to prevent the disciples from sneaking in and stealing the body. Well, we read that when the tomb was opened, that there was a great earthquake or the great, the ground shook, and they fell away in fear and trembling and ran away. Well, where did they run? Well, some of them ran back to the very religious leaders who had told them that they need to stand guard. And this is what took place. And when they had assembled with the elders and the taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them. Isn't this great? This is a great story to be telling right here. They bribed him and said to them, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were, we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. There's two responses. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John. John believed. Mary believed. The disciples believed. Thomas believed. And then there's this response. To outright reject the truth. And formulate a lie. And stand in opposition. To the work that Jesus Christ had done. Now how many of you knew that guards were paid to, to be silenced? It's okay if you didn't know. I mean, they, thank you, Denise. Oh, a few others. Okay. Well, you know, because guess what? Most of us don't know, but you've heard the story of Jesus rising from the grave. You see, the truth overcomes. The truth of Jesus Christ overcomes. And Josephus, Josephus confirms this account that the, this bribery took place in his, in his books. You see... There are losers and there are victors in this resurrection story. The beautiful thing about it is to be part of the victory of Jesus Christ. It is so simple. It is so easy. On Good Friday, we talked about the horrific statement that was made 
to Private Ryan. Y'all have all seen Saving Private Ryan? A few of you? Now, at the end of the movie, I find the statement that Captain Miller says to, jo- to, to, the, to Private Ryan horrific. In fact, I, got, I get a little angry. He says, earn this to Private Ryan. Six lives lost in order that he might live. Earn this. How in the world can Private Ryan earn this? For most of us, that's absurdity. In fact, at the end of the movie, you got the elderly James Ryan standing before Captain Miller's tomb. He brings his wife up, who comes up, and she stands next to him, and she goes, like, who is this guy? So he has never told his wife about who this guy is. And he's asking her, tell me I've lived a good life. As if her words are going to somehow appease and satisfy this, with almost like a godlike verdict that, those sacrifices mattered. It can never appease that. He's going to go to the grave with that burden, brokenhearted and, and, and very troubled in his spirit because he, he had been given this burden. Now imagine if Captain Miller had said to him, this is a gift you've been receiving. Go and live life to the fullest. You see, Jesus Christ does that for us. He says, this is a free gift for you. You can't earn this. There's nothing you can do ever to earn this. In fact, there's nothing you can ever do to secure it. You know, in getting baptized, baptism doesn't secure your salvation or seal it and make you keep it. The reason it's kept is because of who Jesus Christ is. It's his character that keeps our salvation. We don't take communion so that we might seal the deal with God and make sure that everything's lined up so that we have a relationship with him. No, Jesus did that work for us. You see, to be victors in Jesus Christ and to take hold of this incredible victory is to literally to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe in him that he is the son of God. There's nothing you can do or add to his work to make it guaranteed. Jesus Christ guaranteed it based upon his work and who he is. It's simple, but we've made it very, very complicated religiosity has entered into the work of Jesus Christ and they burdened the work of Jesus Christ with things that it should have never been burdened. And Jesus says, says to us, cast off those things that are hindering you and run that race uninhibited. Mm-hmm. To live in light of the grace of Jesus Christ by trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, by believing in the works that he did on the cross for us, by confessing that we're a bunch of mess-ups. Did you know it's okay to confess you're a mess-up? Men, especially, I'm speaking to you. Because most of us feel like we got to have this life of never confessing ever we've done anything ever wrong. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, we confess, Lord, I am a mess-up, I am a screw-up, and you see how messy of an individual I am, yet you still went to the cross for me. Jesus went to the cross knowing we were going to be just a horrific bunch of people to work with. And in spite of us and through us, his kingdom work is done because of the cross and because of the resurrection of the grave. Own it. Who said that? That was beautiful. That was Kenny. Way to add. Uh, Own it. I like that. That's beautiful. Own it. Is that a CrossFit term, Kenny? Own it? No? Okay. All right. All right. Own it. Absolutely. But there's no middle ground this morning. There's no fence to ride. You're either part of the family of God, part of this life in him. See, John, 
The theme verse of John comes at the end of the this time with Thomas in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My question to you this morning is, are you part of the victory? Are you still trying to earn it? Are you still trying to prove yourself? Are you still bringing religiosity into it by by taking place and doing these other things and adding to the gospel when Jesus has said, this is a free gift for you. Take and receive it. Trust in me. Place me upon the throne of your life that you may know what it is to have freedom and life, an abundant life. You may be tempted after this morning to go back home and go, man, you know, evaluate the, the songs and evaluate the sermon on your way home with your family and say it was good or, man, the pastor really went long or, man, he likes to talk a lot. And just take what you've heard and put it on the shelf and say, you know what? Um, there's maybe something there, but I don't know. Other things are more important right now. I implore you, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, there are three books about the story of Jesus Christ. To take time this week and read about the resurrection and begin to really wrestle with what Christ did on your behalf that you might have life. To not put Jesus back up on the shelf and to dismiss the incredible work that he has done for you. To continue to live and continue to desire to be a part of the family of God and to grow in your understanding and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus this morning, I want to read a passage for you. and it's, it's like the greatest victory passage ever. In Romans chapter 8, for those of you who know it or kind of maybe grin into yourself right now, Romans chapter 8, listen to the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That means God's family. Who's going to bring a charge against them? It is God who justifies. The work is complete. It's finished. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus doesn't take a day off. Our salvation is secure because of his continual work for us, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! No! In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's victory. That's victory not based upon what I'm doing. It's victory based upon everything he did. And that's why Resurrection Sunday should be something we celebrate every week, every day. Jesus Christ is alive. It is finished. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. That we might be excited and thrilled to know what you have done on our behalf. Lord, please, Lord God, convict our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit of places where we refuse to surrender our lives. May we lay them down before you saying, Lord, we confess we are sinners in need of you as our Savior. And that need is a need we have every single day. Father God, let us lean into you. Celebrate the victory that you have provided for us that we get to partake in and have confidence in because of the, of the permanency and the character and the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. And as we continue in song, Lord, may you just fill our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Before uh, Jeffrey comes up, I just want to speak to you briefly about something. Um, I'm not going to try to... but. Um, I recognize on Easter Sunday morning is, is, is a morning where people come to check out and find out who Jesus is, why people go to church on a Sunday. Maybe you didn't raise, were raised in that tradition and you're coming in. What's the big deal? And we're so glad you came and so glad you're a part of the service. But we're going to move into a time of reflection and Jeffrey's going to tell you what that looks like. Part of our time of reflection is communion. You're going to see people who are believers in Jesus Christ get up and go take communion together as families, as friends. Um, but that, that table is for those who have said, Jesus is my God. He's my King. And it's bad. Scripture says it's bad for those who are not yet believers to take of of the table. And so we ask that you, you abstain. Don't take it. If you're not yet understanding who Jesus Christ is this morning, you're hearing this for the first time and you're going, I had no idea. That right now you're sitting there and you're going, Lord, please convict my heart, convict my life, and let me learn what it is to follow you and have you be in part of my life. And that this day of, of celebration of Jesus is just added to layer upon layer as children of God, as people now become children of God. But I just wanted to add and talk to you this morning briefly about that. But that, that's what for, it's for. It's for the body of believers to be drawn together in the grace of the Lord of Jesus Christ and celebrate that together. So thank you. And uh, Jeffrey, would you continue? I'm going to step down and stop talking. You owned it. <laughs> this, this is for me. This is a this is a huge time. Uh, as I was sitting and, and listening to my pastor uh, walk through this day, I got to reflect. I started thinking about uh, a New Year's resolution. We always make a, a you know everyone makes that that one time you've made that New Year's resolution like. This year, mine was like, hey, I'm going to lose weight. I'm like, <laughs> failed already. Today, though, like, as I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about this, of this, this, this thought process of the resurrection, like, this should be that time for the resolution of sitting here saying, hey, I'm going to live free. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to live with no boundaries. 
because of what Christ has done. That, that's what I was sitting here thinking, like, man, this should have been the day, like, I get in my closet with Christ, and I said, man, I want to I wanna own it. I want to own this relationship with you. I want to be free. And so as we, as we get to reflect, we get to do it three ways here at LSC. We, first, we are going to do it through song. We're going to praise our king who has risen. He conquered death. We're, we're going to do it through giving of our tithes. If you're a guest here today, we just ask that you let it go because this is for our family. This is for people that call it home. This is how we show that, that we're a family here together. So when the bucket's passed, if you're a guest, please don't feel obligated. But if God is calling your heart to say, I'm going to drop something in there, go ahead and do it. But, but this is for our, our family here. This is how we give. And then this last piece is what our pastor is talking about, this, this thought process of when we go and we take the bread and, and we take of the wine. It's, we do this in remembrance of who Christ was on Friday and how he conquered it on Sunday. And as we take that communion, it's for the believers. It's for the children of this king who was raised today. So as we reflect, let's let's think about this joy that we have. And, and, And like Kenny said, own it. As we walk out today, own it. Own who your father is. Find joy in that. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate life on this earth right now. We don't have to wait for you to come back. We can do it because of what you've done. Let us find peace in that and hope because of your grace and mercy. Be with us this afternoon. It's in your son's name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And at this time, our kids are going to be coming back down and we're going to, we're going to enjoy this time that we get with them. Thank you.